0: Uh, Good morning, church. It's so good to be with you today. We are in week three of a series we're calling Jesus Hates Religion, and and I hope you're enjoying this series. So we got today and a couple more weeks in this series, and we're getting all kinds of emails about life-altering discussions that are happening, and we thank God for that. Uh, So two more weeks after today, and then three weeks from today, we begin a brand new series that we're calling Won't You Be My Neighbor, and uh, there is a whole lot about That word neighbor in Scripture. And in fact, out of the mouth of Jesus, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? You know the first one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But he likened the second one under the first one and he said love your neighbor as yourself and if we're going to take Jesus seriously we have to take the commands out of the mouth of Jesus seriously and, and, and so we're going to talk about neighboring and, and so you want to be there but you also want to bring your neighbor uh to that series and, and so uh three things religion politics and football right? Those are the conversations and topics that always seem to bring the most passion out of people. And often you find people locked in uh, to their beliefs about any one of those topics. And it's anywhere along a wide spectrum uh, of beliefs from one end all the way to the other end. And so most people just avoid talking about religion and talking about politics, which on most days is probably a good decision. But, But the truth is, is that if we stop talking about football, most men would have nothing to talk to. Uh, each other about and, and so we won't do that but but in this series Jesus hates religion of course we're talking about religion but to keep the conversation civil and, and to keep the conflict to a minimum I've gone ahead and set the context and defined the word religion for you and my definition of religion is a man-made path to God man-made we, we made it trying to get to God and in week one we talked about the religion of self And we said that every path to God, every true path to God, every true path uh, to freedom uh, leads to a dead end, the, the end of self of self-trust, and of self-effort. And then last week, in week two, we talked about the religion of legalism. Uh, That's where you and I work and strive to try to please God and try to live the Christian life, but in our own power and our own strength instead of uh, Christ's power and Christ's strength. But heres you, you need to write this down in your heart and on your mind. God's love is not based upon what we do. It's not like your driving record, right? And and, and so that's just another example of man uh, making a path or a checklist to gain the favor of God and and not just gain the favor of God, trying to keep uh, the favor of God. And what religion does is it looks at the deeds and distorts our view of God by, by focusing on being good instead of focusing on God. And listen to the words that Jesus used to describe his mission, to seek and to save, and to break, and to deliver, and and to heal. In other words, Jesus stood against uh, the burden of religion, and the religious hated him for it. In fact, Satan hated him for it. Jesus' purpose was never about conforming. It was always about transforming. He was never interested in what was forbidden, but he was always interested in freedom. And, And so religion makes us believe that we can only come to God if we conform. And that God will only accept us when we have it all together. And the devil lies to us and and, and tells us that God expects us to be faultless. And God expects us to always get it right. And God expects us to to understand everything that's in here and, and by our own strength walk it out. But God loves us. And God loves to transform us, and and he makes us righteous. And the truth is, we don't bring anything to God. He gives us all we need. And, And to accomplish this, we said last week, there are two questions we need to ask on a regular basis. Do you remember? Question number one is, what do I believe? And question number two is, is it true? Or or another way to phrase that second one is, uh, what does the word say? And for those answers, we we have to go to the source of truth. We have to go to the word of God. This is not a list of rules. This is a love letter from a heavenly father to each of his children. And today I want to finish that thought and I want to talk about who we are and how we find it how we find out who we are. And religion, by the way, works against that, and it tries to block us from discovering that. And and, and so we have to find a different way around uh, religion into relationship. We we, we can't go through religion. And and so those two ideas, by the way, religion and relationship, hear me, they are in conflict with one another. They're in conflict with one another. And and, and this uh, area that we're talking about today of knowing who we are in Christ and finding our true selves in Christ, listen, uh, relationship is what reveals our true identity. But what religion does is reveal inferiority. And that's what I want to talk about today is the religion of inferiority. And that word, in simplest terms, it means of low quality or of poor grade. Let me show you a couple of uh, Webster's definitions. Inferiority, less important or less valuable. Uh, In terms of our actions, acting or performing in a way that is comparatively poor or mediocre. And that last definition, it's amazing. But if you think that you are of poor quality, if that's what you believe about yourself, or you think that you are of low importance, or you think that you are of a lesser value, hear me, you will begin to act that way. And God never intended for His children to live with an inferiority complex. He never intended for us to feel that as if we are somehow substandard. And hear me, any religion or any belief system that tries to get you to think that way has zero foundation in truth, has zero foundation in your heavenly father, has zero foundation in the word of God. In fact, I'll go even further. It comes straight from the pit of hell and it comes straight from the father of all lies. God has always intended for us to be free, to discover ourselves. To, to find our role and to find our purpose in life to, to and, and be empowered to fulfill it. Not just to find it and be frustrated with it for the rest of our lives, but to find it and to walk it out and to fulfill it. H- hear me, that's what we're doing in this advanced track. We, we, today is week three of the advanced track. We've taken 98 people this month through the advanced track through the first three weeks across all of our campuses. And we'll start it again at the first week of October. And if you've not gone through the advanced track, go in October at your campus to the advanced track. It's a four-week class to help you find your place and your purpose in this world. And the religion of inferiority seeks to make us believe that we are less than enough, that we fall short, that that mountain is too high. And in order to overcome our inferiority complex, we must do something to close the gap between us and God. That it's on us to do that. And many Christians, in fact, I dare say most, Behave in ways that we don't understand. That we want to be saints, but we think that's just too hard. And, and there's too much effort involved in that. And, and in vulnerable conversations periodically, I'll hear people say, Pastor, I just, I, I, it's just easier to be myself than to try to be Christian. And that comment is so telling. And it reveals so much about religion and our perspective. And and why do we think we have to work so hard? And why do we think we have to strive so much? And, And why do we think that once we become Christians, we can no longer be ourselves? And the big question, the one I want to tackle today, the big, big, big question is, who are you? And most of us have settled for a false identity because of the power of suggestion. Suggestion from the devil, suggestion from the flesh, suggestion from the world. You know you are a Christian, but you don't know who you are now. And you don't know how much your identity changed when you became a Christian. Here's a guiding principle for you to ponder uh, today while we study this. Write this down. You cannot... Period. You cannot consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with the way that you see yourself. You can't, it is impossible. I heard a a guy talking this week and he's a a preacher and uh, travels and speaks and and he was talking about, uh, he's older uh, than me, so he was raised in a generation where smoking was just acceptable and was just cool. In fact, everybody smoked and and he came to know Christ at like 19 years of age and he, he said for years he would sit and do his quiet time with a cup of coffee and during the quiet time would smoke four or five cigarettes. And he, and he didn't have a problem with it. He thought that's just what everybody, Christian, every Christian did. He didn't know. But but then God called him to start preaching and God started speaking to him and saying, hey, I can't use you like I want to use you while you're addicted to another substance other than the Holy Spirit. And, and in that process, he said for the next several months, he tried every trick to get rid of cigarettes and, and, and to get rid of his addiction uh, to nicotine and to tobacco. And he tried the patches and, and, and the gum and everything. He tried it all, right? He tried all of it. The, the stickers, which is funny, right? The, the, the Stickers is how what we ought to give to children today who are vaping. We should give them a smell and sniff sticker. Stick it right there on their sternum and say, you know, just smell this and quit ruining your lungs. But he said he tried every single thing to no avail. And, and then he went on a fast and, and while he was fasting, he felt the Holy Spirit speaking to him. And here's what he said the Holy Spirit said. And it is so simple, but it is so revolutionary. He said, every time you are tempted to smoke, what I want you to do is confess with your mouth, I am a non-smoker. I am a non-smoker. And and he started doing it. He said at the factory where he worked, uh, everybody smoked. And, And here's the truth. If you've never been around people who smoke, people who don't smoke make them nervous right? And and so they're continually wanting to be your friend and your buddy. You're like, Hey, you need a cigarette. Can I get you a cigarette? Can I get, and and he said, he just started quoting and he'd say, I'm a non-smoker. And he said, all of his buddies would be like, you smoked yesterday. And and, uh, he said, I I, I know, but today I am a non-smoker. And he said, simply by confessing the truth of who he was in his mother's womb. Listen, God did not make you a smoker in your mother's womb. You've believed a lie. And he said, simply confessing who I was in my mother's womb now has changed my addiction to this nasty substance to the degree that he said now he's disgusted by the smell of smoke. Listen to me, men. Some of you need to start filling your mind and saying to yourself when a bad thought enters your mind, I am a pure thinker. I am a child of God. I do not think thoughts like that. That is not who I am. And next to a knowledge of God, listen, a knowledge of who we are may be the most important thing in all of Christianity. And Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you, say it, free. free. It will set you free. When you know it, it will set you free. I I was camp pastor for decades, for decades. I still do it periodically in in the summers. Go speak at camps where youth groups all come together from across a state or multiple states. And I I will never forget this camp because I was preaching. It was one of those camps where Jesus sat down in our midst and and there was there was this youth pastor who kept saying to me, hey, there's a girl in my group. I, I wish you could talk to her. And then some of the volunteers are in the, uh, who, who were a part of that youth ministry would say, hey, Pastor Alex, if you could just spend 10 minutes, just 10 minutes with this girl. She, she has tried to commit suicide a couple of times, and God's really rocking her world this week th- through your preaching. If you could just visit with her. And, and so the time came, and the opportunity arose, and we sat down, and, and, and we were having a coke together, and, and, and this young girl, 15 years old, was overweight. She tried to kill herself a couple of times. And I looked at her. And I said, her name is Miriam. And I said, Miriam, I want to ask you a question. On a scale of 1 to 10, in terms of acceptance from God, your Heavenly Father, where are you? Where do you believe you are on this scale of God's acceptance towards you? And she said, I'm a negative 3. And it crushed me. To hear a 15-year-old girl say, I'm a negative 3. And I just want to ask you today, where are you? On a scale of 1 to 10, of how much does God accept you, where would you put yourself? And if you find yourself not fully accepted by God, hear me, it's going to be very hard for you to ever get close to Him. Why? because we reject those who reject us don't we that's what we do we don't get the job oh, i don't want to work there anyways it'd be a sucky job i don't want to do that right that's how we do and it's some defense mechanism that we have built up in ourselves and if we feel rejected by god we will reject him And we will turn away from him and walk away from him. But even down deeper is you don't accept you, so you reject yourself. And church, hear me. This is one of Satan's most effective tools to make us feel like God frowns upon us when he looks at us. And most Christians, most Christians have a spiritual inferiority complex, seeing themselves as a saved sinner. A safe center who is trying their best to serve God the best they can. And it's not just the devil who tells us that. It's our culture. And our culture will pound it into our heads. And in fact, let me just play a little game with you. Who, who, is, who is LeBron James? Who is LeBron James? He's a basketball player, right? Who, who, who is uh, Denzel Washington? He's an actor. Who, who is uh, Bruno Mars? Every time I flip at that, I'm like, he's really pretty, actually. It's just... Freaky weird, freaky weird. But do you see what's wrong with, with, with what you did there? By the answers you gave me as to who these three men are? You, you defined all three of these men by what they do, not by who they are. I didn't hear anybody say a father a son, a brother, a friend. And it's not just famous people we do that with. We do that to ourselves, don't we? And and we have these layers. It's kind of like those Russian nesting dolls. You remember those things? And and, and there's all these layers of identity that that we place on ourselves. And it's not just famous people. In fact, we do it with ourselves. Who who is Alex Hamaya, right? If I were to ask you that question, many of you would say, "I, I think he's an amazing pastor. Right? In, in fact, he's, he's my pastor. But I'm not just your pastor. I, I am uh, an amazing husband to my beautiful and amazing wife, Meredith, right? And, and so I, I'm not just a pastor, I'm also a husband. But I'm not just a husband, I'm also the father to, to these four beautiful children Catherine, Elijah, Benjamin, and, and Limley. But I'm also the author of the book you've been studying. And I've written a really good book, actually. And 500 groups are studying it, and people, universities are calling and saying, hey, can we use this in our dormitories to lead small groups with these college kids? And it's phenomenal what God is doing. It is, it's unbelievable. But, but when I ask you who is Alex Hamaya, I just want you to hear me say today, I am unbelievably, unequivocally offended that none of you said he's a rapper He's a rapper. That boy can rap. And, and you're offended that I ever tried. Right? You, you should never have tried that. And, and, and let, me just, let me just vent for a minute. Several weeks ago, when I did that little rap and said, you can't get free anonymously, some local pastors, some pastors who watch us on social media reached out. And a couple of them said, you need to Repent. That's the word they used. You need to repent. I said, that's a strong word. That's what you believe? And they said, yeah, yeah, it's undignified. It's unholy. It is not how the preacher of the gospel communicates the gospel. You need to repent. To to which I said, watch the whole sermon and I'll take your call. He said, "I I don't need to watch the whole sermon. It's undignified, and I'm calling you to repent. And and I resisted the urge to use this joker as an illustration last week in legalism. But since we're not talking about legalism, I can bring it up today. (laughs) And, And what I said to him is, hey, I will repent to Tupac for ruining his rap. But I'm not repenting to Jesus Christ because he is pleased with me as I communicate the word of God. And and, and what I need to hear you say, listen to me, listen, some of you, if somebody asked you who you are, the first thing you would say is your name, right? But if they pushed and they said, now tell me about yourself, what are you going to say? And how you answer that question, hear me, it says a lot about where you place your sense of identity. And usually what we do in our culture is we attach it to to what we do, to what we do. And I want you to hear me declare over you today, church, you are not defined by what you do. You are defined by who you are and whose you are. And you are uh, you are way more than your job. You are way more than your faults. You're way more than even your sexuality. And this culture wants to tell you that all you are is your sexuality. You are way more than your sexuality. And students, hear me, you're more than your social media influence. You're more than your athletic ability. You're more than your cheerleading ability. You're, you're more than your academic achievements. You are more more than anything that you accomplish musically. And our culture has taught us that our identity is defined by our behavior or by our performance. And when our performance slips, which always happens, all we're left with at that moment is inferiority. But you got to hear me. Behavior does not determine identity. Birth determines identity. And for the child of God, it's rebirth that determines your identity. And many of us have not discovered our spiritual DNA. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. That means that anyone who belongs to Christ, that's another way of saying born again. You ever heard of that? Anybody who is born again, anybody who belongs to Christ has become a new creation, And in case you don't understand the Greek word there, Paul went on to explain it even further. And he said, The old life is, say it, church, it's gone. gone. It's long gone. And a new life has begun. Do Do you know what the root word of the word creation is? What is it? Create. You know how powerful that word is? In the beginning. God made the heavens and the earth. He created them out of nothing. He made something. That means He did not improve upon you. He created you new. He made you a new person. You are not the same person you were before you were saved. Now, wh- what do I mean when I say you're not the same person that, that you were when you, before you were saved? Well, first of all, you got to understand how we are made and you got to understand our whole nature. Just like God, just like God, and this is biblical perspective, you are a triune being. You are one with three parts, spirit, soul, and body. And, and you say, you talk about this all the time. Get it and I'll quit talking about it. This is so foundational to everything we believe in Christianity. You are a spirit that has a soul that lives in a body. You were that way before you came to know Jesus Christ, and you are that way after you know Jesus Christ. Now, what is the spirit? The spirit is you. It's who you are. You're not a physical being with a temporary spiritual experience. You are a spiritual being with a temporary physical experience. And the spirit is you that will go on forever and ever and ever, either with Jesus in heaven or without Jesus in a place called hell. Now, the soul, what what is the soul? The soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And, And within your soul, you are born with what is called a sin nature we're all born into sin we all have a sin nature before we come to know jesus that nature reigns why because before we come to know jesus we are possessed by the devil before you freak out at that phrase possession means ownership that's what it means you're owned by the devil but we also develop during that stage of life learned behaviors, which the Bible calls flesh. And flesh comes from the sin nature. Now, when we come to know Jesus, and this is foundational, you have got to understand this. When you come to know da- Jesus, the sin nature is kilt. It's dead. Why? Because the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you and he can't reside where sin nature resides. And so it is killed. It is gone. It's cut away. It's done with. In fact, the word that the New Testament uses is your sin nature was circumcised it's gone. It's rotting somewhere. It is dead and gone, but there is still the flesh and the flesh is that learned behavior that that we have to deal with the the rest of our lives. but, But the sin nature is killed. It's done away. How do I know that? Because the Bible says we're new creatures. Ephesians chapter two and verse one, Paul says that God has brought to life those who were dead in their sins. And so our identity is none of these things. It's none of these things that we do. Our identity now that we are a follower of Christ is in Christ. And everything that we are falls under this. That is who our identity is because this is where we have been born again. This is the verse I gave you last week in Acts chapter 17 where he says, In him we live and move and have our being. Live and move and have our being. That's all of life, right? Paul says in Colossians, Christ is our life, which raises a great question. And I know it's happening in your groups as you're talking about this subject. It happened in our group last week. In fact, I was so glad I was there so that I could explain what the author meant. And it's come up. Several questions have come up this week, and and people are emailing, and they're asking these questions. People are catching us on Facebook and social media, and they're asking this question, and it's a great question. And and here's the question. If the old nature is dead, then why do we still sin? It's a good question. And in order to answer that question, we have to understand the battleground. And I got to tell you a a personal conviction that I have, and I'm not... uh, it's not unanimous uh, uh, among people who study the word of God, but, but there are a lot of us who agree with, with what I say. And, and so what I would say to you is you, you have to pick your own decision and the people who disagree with me in heaven, they're going to apologize. <laughs> but as a child of God, what I would say to you is this. I do believe that we, those of us who are in Christ, have the potential to overcome temptation every time. Every time. Every time. You say, well, that's extreme. Okay. Does the Holy Spirit have the ability to overcome temptation every time? Yes or no? Does the Holy Spirit dwell in you? Yes or no? So if the Holy Spirit dwells in you and you submit yourself to the Holy Spirit, every time you have the ability to say no or overcome temptation. But, but if we don't understand the method of operation that our enemy uses, we will always be vulnerable. Always. Always. And so let's look at the terrain and I want to look at those two things that I've already mentioned that make up this battleground that we're talking about today. I've already mentioned them, but now I want to enumerate them for you so that you can write them down. The first thing I want to talk about is the sin nature and every single person born of Adam possesses a sin nature. Ephesians chapter two, verses two and three tell us that it is the nature of an unbeliever. The sin nature is the nature of an unbeliever. And so this is who we are. Before we come to Christ, we have this sin nature and it's marked in iodine and it stains and it, it, it is all over us. But, but the truth is, is that God, uh, his word tells us that at salvation, that dies. That sin nature dies. Romans chapter six. We know that our old sinful selves, that's the sin nature, was crucified with Christ. So that, and by the way, people don't survive crucifixion. It was The sin nature was crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives and we would no longer be slaves to sin. Galatians 2.20, my old self, my old nature has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And some people get this confused. And the reason some people who are Bible students get this confused, I'm convinced, is because of the NIV, the New International Version translation, which I have 10 of them and I like it. But its choice of words in Romans uh, 7 and 8, where it translates the Greek word sarx into sin nature, is a bad translation. And that's where believers get incredibly confused. That word sarx means flesh. Christians don't have a sin nature. It died when we came to Jesus Christ And Christ died on the cross and removed our sin nature. And when we were born again, God made us new, and the Holy Spirit came to dwell in us. But if you've never accepted Christ, hear me, or you've never put all of your trust in him, you still have a sin nature. It is your nature, in fact. But but even after salvation, listen, the sin nature is gone. You do need to know that you have to deal with the flesh. And the flesh... Sometimes that Greek word sarx in the Bible is translated skin. I mean, it's literally talking about flesh on a human body, on a skeleton. But more often than not, that word sarx, S-A-R-X, refers to the learned behaviors developed by our dependence on the sin nature. You want a definition? Let me just give you my definition of flesh. It's the self-sufficient technique that we use to manage life. That's what flesh is, self-sufficient or man-made technique that we use to manage life. Look at Galatians 5 for what the flesh wants is opposed to what the spirit wants and what the spirit wants is opposed to what the flesh wants they are opposed to each other so you don't do what you want to do that is the answer to the question why does a believer in Christ who has no sin nature continue to sin that, that we're talking about learned strategies that we employ in our lives or behaviors that we have learned from handling life apart from Christ and our flesh did not die our learned behavior is still there and it is stored in our flesh and it is, in, it's in our brains and it's ready to be activated at any moment. We are not depending on God. It will be activated in a nanosecond. The moment you're not depending upon God, the moment you're not submitted and surrendered to God. Here, here's a, 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 a thing that you need to write down. When we are in the flesh, we depend on our own abilities to change or to be accepted by God. In the flesh, we're depending upon our own ability to change and our own ability to be accepted by God. And in the world that you and I have been raised in, we tend to believe that the way someone becomes righteous is to do righteous things. And that's silly. And the truth is, we don't become sinners by sinning. We were born sinners. We sin because we are born sinners. And we act righteously when we are born again Righteous. And what Paul says, he says, I count everything. And he's not talking about all these bad things. He's talking about all the good things, self righteous things he has done in his life. All of these things, Paul says. Philippians 3 8, if you want to write this down and look it up later, all of these good things I have done, all of these self righteous things I have done in my life, I count them as scubala. It's fun to say. Everybody say it scubala. Your pastor just coaxed you into cussing in church. You say, why are you using the Greek word? If I translated it into English, you'd run me out of here. It's the word for poop, and it doesn't start with a P. It is a bad, bad, bad word. And Paul was making a point. He was saying, all of my self-righteousness, I count but that. Listen, when we try to be righteous with our own effort, we gratify the flesh And we think that somehow that we can take this sin nature uh, that we have and and we can just wash it and wash it in the water by good deeds and good actions. And here's what I want you to hear me say today. Listen, all the self-righteousness in the world can't clean it. You can clean and clean and clean and clean and and, and you still have a sin nature. It's just wet and and it's just destroyed. And, And listen, only God can change the spirit. Only God can change the spirit, but when you have been changed in the spirit, your flesh can be altered by renewing your mind to who you really are, and and it can be altered by your thinking. Listen, as a believer, our thinking, it becomes negative all the time, And, and that happens when we believe lies. Lies told to us by the devil, lies told to us by our friends, lies told to us by hurtful experiences. Listen, and we've got to begin to make decisions based on the reality, not our perception of the reality. Because if we think we are unacceptable to God, we will inevitably begin to make decisions based on those thoughts. So there's the sin nature, killed at the point of salvation. Are you following? It's dead. And then there's the flesh. And we've got to keep battling it. Those old behaviors in the way of the world. And listen, failure for the believer. Not for the unbeliever. But failure for the believer does not come at the hand of the sin nature. It's dead. Failure for the believer comes when we depend upon our flesh rather than depending upon God, simply acting out of our own abilities rather than trusting in Christ. And to break all of that, we must understand who we are. And of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of statements that have been made over us in Scripture, I chose three today, and I want you to write them down. And even if you don't have a pen or a pencil, borrow one. Get one out of the seat pocket in front of you or behind you. Get your mascara or lipstick out. You, you, you need to write this down. You have got to take this home with you today, okay? Put it in your tablet. Put it in your phone. And I've put each of these points, each of them, I've put in first person so that you can say it over yourself. But, but when we take this sin nature... And we, and we don't try to wash it with our self-righteousness, but we put it under the blood of Jesus. And into the blood of Jesus, we, we begin to take our, our things to Jesus, and he changes our very nature. Then we can make this statement, I am God's work of art. Write that down. I'm God's work of art, Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10 says we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus, brand new, so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We don't become righteous by doing good things. We have the chance of doing good things because we have been made righteous. By the way, that Greek word for masterpiece or uh, workmanship, some translations say in Ephesians 2.10, it's the Greek word poema. It's where we get our English word, poem, which means that God has made you a heavenly piece of poetry, which rap is poetry, by the way, punk. (laughs) Repeat after me. I am God's work of art. Second one, I am righteous and holy. Romans 5, 17, the sin of this one man, one man, it's not fair. The sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over us. But to all who receive God's wonderful, gracious gift of righteousness... Righteousness is the gift he has given us. We'll we'll live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. It's not fair that Adam's sin is, is imputed on me or imparted on me, right? It's not fair at all. But you know what? I'll take that deal. If the righteousness of Jesus gets to be put on me. Listen, your spirit was filled with righteousness at the point of salvation. Remember, who you are at the spirit level determines who you are in your identity. So repeat after me, I am God's work of art. Repeat after me, I am righteous and holy. Now now here's the third one, I want you to write it down. I am fully accepted by God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. So we praise God for the wonderful kindness that he has poured out on us because we belong, not because we did. Because we belong to his dearly loved son. Church, hear me today. Hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. You don't have to change a thing to be fully accepted by the Father. It is not based on what you do, but on whose you are pastor, I don't feel like a work of art. That's not how I feel. I don't feel uh, holy and righteous. I don't feel completely accepted. Listen, you must decide whether you're going to live by feelings or or you're going to live by the truth. And, And you have to declare the truth over yourself. I am a work of art. I am holy. I am accepted and I am righteous. And my sin nature is completely gone. It has been washed away and circumcised away from who I am. Listen to me. Are you going to go by what you feel or by what you know? The Word of God declares these things true about your identity today. But Satan is a whisperer. And he comes whispering in the ears of the children of the king. You have to act righteous. Sounds so right. And it makes so much sense. You have to act, you have to act. That's why it's so deadly. Because God tells us something else and He screams in our hearts, you are a new creation. And he gets to decide because he is the one who did it. And and why do so many believers, pastor, struggle with the same sin over and over and over again? I'm going to make it really simple for you. You've believed a lie. You have a misbelief. And the deceiver has convinced them that they are nothing more than sinners. Sinners. Saved by grace. You are not a sinner saved by grace. That is no longer true of you the moment you are saved. Listen, a, a, a sinner saved by grace, that's not who you are. You are a saint. You have the life of Jesus flowing through your blood and flowing through your veins. At the core of your being is the life of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The sinner saved by grace spends his whole life on defense against the devil. But the saint, it goes on the offensive. And there's a difference between identity and inferiority. None of you have ever looked at a butterfly and said, that is a beautiful converted worm. (laughs) You've never done that. That would be ridiculous. But that's what it is. After all, it's a converted, beautiful worm. But we don't see it in terms of what it was. We we see it in terms of what it is. And and hear me, I'm not saying that understanding your identity will cause you to never sin again. But when you do, you will see it as foolish. You'll see it as inconsistent. You'll see it as not befitting for a child of, of the king. When you don't know your identity and you sin, you will feel condemnation. But the Bible says there is no condemnation on you. There is none. It doesn't belong on his children. Renew your mind to who you are. Renew your mind to the fact that you are a saint. The Bible says that in the New Testament 63 times over you. In the Old Testament, this forgiveness thing, it was imputed. But in the New Testament, it has been imparted. Imputed is a legal standing. Imparted is a literal event. And in the days of grace, we're literally given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're given it as a gift on us. And it's overwhelming when you understand that. When my children were little... Meredith bought this book by Beth Moore. and We used to read it to to the kids. I encourage you to get it if you have small children our our grandchildren. This one is called A Parable About the King. I think it's been retitled, To My Princess, My Child. I'm not going to read you the whole book, but you would love it if I did. But I'll just summarize the story. A little girl princess about 8 years old was told by her daddy the king to clean her room. Which <clears throat> she thought, we have people to do that. Why would he ask me to do that? And she got mad. She began throwing her clothes out of the door, out of the drawers and she thought I'll just leave my room a mess. And she found her most undesirable clothes and she put them on and she snuck out of the castle to go play with the peasant children. And while she began to play with them, she tripped in the mud and she was all dirty, just like them. And they invited her to play stickball, and when she would miss the ball, she would curse, just like them. And when the behavior was judged, she was behaving just like them. And then down the street, one of the boys begins to scream, Come, come, they're coming, they're all coming. And so all the children ran off, and so just like them, she followed along and she made her way to a crowd where there's a crowd watching something. They couldn't see what they were watching. And so the children began to elbow their way through the crowd, trying to make their way through these dignitaries who were dressed beautifully. The dignitaries turned and looked at them and said, get off of me, you filthy child. To which she responded, I'm not a filthy child. I am a print. And her words faded off because she looked just like them. And one of the children said, we're not going to be able to make our way to the front. It's no use. Let's climb that tree. And and so they went and they climbed the tree and began to watch. And and, and while she was taking her turn to climb the tree, she was inexperienced at climbing trees. And and so she fell down and ripped her dress and, and skinned her knees and her elbows. And she wanted to cry, but she was not about to cry in front of them because she was just like them. And so just like them, she cursed in that moment. And she asked them at the top of the tree, what are you looking at? And one of the children uh, screamed down to her, said, don't you know a king when you see one? The parade was coming and the king was in it. And as she made her way to the top of the tree, she watched her daddy get out of the coach. And when he did, everybody else bowed, except for the king. And one of the boys looked at his friends and said, we can hit him from this angle with our spitwads. I think I can hit him in the face. <gasps> she said, you can't do that. They said, why not? She said, he's the king. So what? He's not just the king, he, he's my father. They, said, they laughed and said, he's not your father. You're just like us. You don't have a father. And she began to cry and say, you can't, he's my father. And they made fun of her and she fell out of the tree and she began to run home to the castle. And halfway to the castle, she began to notice the stinging in her elbows and her knees and the blood coming out of the wounds. And, And she felt so ashamed and so embarrassed and so tattered and so undone. And as she made her way into the castle grounds, she went to the door, the back door, the secret door, and it was locked. And she went to the next door and it was locked. And she went to the next door and it was locked. And she knew in her heart what she was going to have to do was to go through the front door. So ashamed and so embarrassed. She resisted. But as the sun began to set and she began to get hungry and her wounds were hurting more, she went and knocked on the front door. And before she could knock a second time, the door opened. With her head in shame down, she saw the shoes. She knew they were her daddy's shoes. And he bent down on his knees, and he said, my princess and my child. And she burst into tears as she held her daddy's neck, and she said, Daddy, I'm not a princess anymore. I'm just like them. And he held her face and he looked in her eyes and said, No, honey, you acted like them, but you are not one of them. You are my child. And he bathed her and dealt with her wounds and put her in her soft bed in her beautiful nightgown. And as he walked out of the door to turn the light off, she said, Daddy, never again. Knowing her heart, he went and sat on the bed beside her. He said, oh honey, there will be other times. There will be. But every time you knock, I will answer the door. And I will love you forever and ever. And there is no end to this story the love of the king over his children. Would you pray with me across all of our campuses? Father, today in this place, I pray in the heavenlies that you would do what I sense you're doing. And anything that would fight you and anything that would resist you, I pray that you you, you would knock it out and you would remove it. I pray over your children today, those that you've put under our watch. I I I pray, Father, you would take off blinders. I pray, Father, you you would take earplugs out. I pray, Father, that they would hear your voice, that they would see you as the king who loves them as royalty. Father, I pray today that you would break bondages that have held my brothers and sisters for decades, some of them a lifetime simply by helping them know who they are and whose they are. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you don't have a relationship with the King. I want to invite you to take that step of faith today. And and I want to lead you in a prayer. And you say, maybe you're here for the first time. You say, Pastor, I don't know how to pray. That's okay. We're so glad you're here. I'll pray it one phrase at a time so that you can simply repeat after me. But I don't want you to just repeat after me. I want you to pray it. You're you're not going to pray alone. You're going to hear men and women all around you at every campus praying with me. But if you want to come to know your Heavenly Father, would you just pray with me and say, Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've messed up, but today I ask You to forgive me of all my sin. Jesus, come into my life to be my Lord, my Savior, my forgiver. I receive You, and I receive salvation. Thank You for saving me. In Jesus' name we pray, and together we all say, Amen and amen. Would you thank the Lord today for salvation Jesus' his heart? Let, let, let me just say to you, church, listen. Probably when you became a Christian, somebody told you and, and you understood that your sins were forgiven. That's not enough, nor is it proper motivation to change our behavior. What the Bible says is that you became a child of the king. And you have a new identity. And as you flesh that out, you watch and see what happens in the freedom that Jesus died to provide for you. Let's stand together at every campus and let's declare this in song today.